This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive. This episode is brought to you by bullpencareers.com. Bullpen Careers is the best place to find young talent and the easiest place to find a job. Founded by former podcast guest Edwin Dorsey, the job board connects tomorrow's analysts with today's best companies. Some of the featured companies include Citadel, Citron Research, Point72, and Bridgewater, to name a few. If you or someone you know wants a job in finance, head on over to bullpencareers.com today. That's bullpencareers.com. All right, guys, it is Thursday morning, and I've got the pleasure of speaking to the Cuppy, Harris Kupperman of Praetorian Capital. I had Cuppy on the show, I think it was last March, um, around this time last March, um, during really kind of the heat of heat of COVID, things were things were wild, and Cuppy was killing it then. He's killing it now. Not much has changed for him except the tickers that he's trading. But uh, <laughs> things are things are things are looking things are looking great for him. And if you followed him into some of these ideas, and 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 if you've read his blog, um, you know you're probably you're probably doing pretty well. So, Cuppy, besides being awesome, uh, how are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm doing great, man. It's been a great run. Um, you know, I'm having a lot of fun doing this too. The one thing that has changed since the podcast um, last year was the um, kind of arbitrage that you're finding in a lot of these esoteric s- situations like SPAC unlocks. Um, you know, some of these uh, when they when they go, you know, when they when they finally merge, and then you've got the IPO unlocks. And I know you did a recent interview quasi podcast about this sort of strategy, but for those that may not have listened to it, why don't you walk us through um, on a high level and maybe with an example, what this, what this IPO unlock ARB trade looks like? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I've been trading event driven stuff for a very long time, pretty much my whole career. Uh, I can cycle. Sometimes the opportunities are great. Sometimes not so great, but um one of the things I've really been dialed in on is uh, the unlocks lately because, um, you know, the, the game's kind of changed in terms of uh, IPOs. If you think back, you know, a few years ago, IPOs were for growth companies to get growth capital to grow faster. And now increasingly, uh, IPOs and SPACs are for mature companies uh, that have stopped growing fast to get dumped on the public at uh, silly valuations or, you know, in the case of SPACs, it's... Um, to basically dump fake businesses on the public. Um, and so um, I've been queuing in on this because uh, these businesses are, uh, th- th- these offerings are done in a way that's designed to restrict the float early on so the insiders get a better price. So basically you have to think of it like an iceberg where uh, what you see in terms of what's trading on your screen each day is a small percentage of the shares outstanding. And it's done that way so that the insiders along with their banker buddies can kind of manipulate the shares higher. And then uh, you have this thing called an unlock where the insiders are finally allowed to sell their shares. So it's all like a big hustle to get to the unlock day and then to basically get the best price on the way out the door. And, um, you know, it's it's no secret when the unlocks are. You just have to go into the document and read the damn document. And Mm -hmm. so, um, you know, we've been doing a lot of that. I mean, uh, it's something I wish I was doing uh, 
better. Honestly, it's just too many of them. But you know, we look at one of these uh, IPO unlocks. It used to be 180 days after the offering, uh, which made it very easy. And Bloomberg would just code it. And Bloomberg still flagged 180 days after the offering. But now the terms have changed and uh, the rules have changed. And every document's different. And it's made so that Bloomberg can't just flag it for people. Hmm. Uh, a lot of them are if-then statements. If a certain event happens and then another event happens, but not this other event, then you know, the insider can sell. And right. so it's designed to not even be a calendar day. It's, it's designed to track, you know, 15 days after X happens, assuming Y has already happened the 45 days before that. Mm -hmm. And um, if you figure it all out, you're going to catch the day that the stock drops 20%. And these guys are figuring it out because it usually drops 10, 20% into that day and then drops another 10, 20%. Um, and like I said, we've been figuring it out and making some money here. Uh, it's super easy to figure out too. You just got to do the work. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it goes back to kind of what you said, um, in your, in your Q1 letter where it's like, you know, there's, there's, there's certain edges that you can still have. And most people, when they log on to their trading accounts, they're going up against, and this is, this, this is paraphrasing you millions of wicked smart people, most of the time smarter than you on a lot of the stocks that you're following. But if you're willing to do the work and you're willing to find out, you know, basically, codify these if then statements and turn those conditionals into into some sort of event driven catalyst there's tons of money to be made and i wonder have you shopped around and see if there's like funds that are doing this specifically like event like ipo unlock specific funds i don't think these ipos uh, unlock funds but i know there's a lot of event driven funds that have this is a core strategy you know uh ipo unlock and spac unlock uh, yeah. anything that produces alpha tends to attract people and it kind of goes in cycles where you produce some alpha and then it'll track a lot of guys and the alpha kind of gets barbed out and then some other you know sector it's, it's kind of like uh when you have one of those two-day-old balloons you squeeze it in one side and it kind of balloons out one way and then yeah. there's some other part of the balloon like deflates and it's kind of the same thing here you know everyone will start looking at this and they'll put you know analyst manpower on this thing and capital and some other part of the market will have the opportunities but for right now especially given that i think we're in either a flat or down market um mm -hmm. Unlock where just any bear leaning strategy or market neutral strategy should do very well. Uh, unlocks were terrible uh, last year because the market went straight up and you just got ran over. But, you know, even just if, if we're in a chop market, it should uh, add alpha. Yeah. So walk us through maybe one of your recent examples of, of doing an IPO unlock and and, and kind of how you how you found it and then, and then that whole process. Well, I don't want to say I traded all these, but... Um, you know, we were watching, um, I mean, let's talk about a firm, okay? Uh, here's AFRM, I believe. Yep. Um, that thing's and... been a uh, piece of uh, just uh, fecal matter, I guess, if you want to call it, since going public. <laughs> well, it's a buy now, pay later um, business, which is notoriously a terrible business. Um, it's subprime lending. It's mainly tied to uh, Pelotons. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's a financial company, which you know, most financial companies trade at roughly book value, or, you know, if they have really specialized uh, modes, maybe trade a premium to book value. But in this case, they're doing something that anyone can do, and they're allowed to trade around book value, and book value is a lot below the IPO price. They're kind of masquerading as being a fintech, and, you know, they're not a tech company, they're a subprime lender. Um, yeah, you know, usually subprime lenders trade discounts to uh, NAV because it's always assumed they're going to end up making a bunch of bad loans and blow up. It's usually in any case, um, 
the uh, insiders were able to trick the market and get a great price on the listing. And there'd been um, two sets of unlocks and uh, the two sets of unlocks, um, you know, really uh, were done in a uh, tricky way. I mean, let's just go through some numbers here. Uh, a firm has 257 million shares outstanding, okay? So mm -hmm. it's, it's a big company. The IPO 24.6 million. I mean, that's that iceberg I was telling you about. Uh, right. You know, so the, the floats are restricted. Then on March 3, they did something kind of creative. Uh, 28.6 million shares unlocked, but uh, less than 1% holders could sell 35% of their shares. Greater than 1% holders could sell 10% of their shares. Well, look at a chart around March 3. It just kind of detonated a week or two before that because there's a lot of people watching this and they know that. I mean, it would have been pretty easy to get short, you know, two weeks before you made a lot of money. Uh, but what I want to flag, and uh, I think it's much more timely, is that two days after the earnings release, 23 and a half million shares come free trading. And the earnings release was uh, last week. So those shares already come free trading and the stock's kind of wilting. I mean, yeah. the stock basically wilted from the 70s into the 50s on that. Yep. And then uh, 10 days after the earnings release, this is a big enchilada, 141 million shares come uh, free trading. Damn. And that's a lot of stock. Yeah. And, and, and like, but like I was saying, I mean, they don't make it easy for you to find this. You have to go through the prospectus. You have to really mm -hmm. look closely for it. Um, it's there. Um, and this is for people who want to trade this from an event-driven standpoint. This is for people who, um, you know, own the stock and don't want to get, you know, nuked. I, I don't know what the technical term is, but uh, <laughs> blowed up or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. But you should know where these dates are if you're going to be playing in new issuance markets. And um, I'm amazed how people are blindsided. I mean, millions of shares traded over $100 a share, and here we are at 53. And in a few days, 141 million shares are coming. Um, you know, I'm not telling you if the stock's going to drop on those shares. I mean, some of this is probably arbitraged out. The short interest is up quite a lot. Uh, you know, but still, it's a lot of stock. And I'd hate to be long ahead of that. You're better off, you know, waiting until that's kind of trickles the market a bit. You're probably going to get a better price if this is the sort of, uh, you know, crappy company you want to own. Yeah, well, I mean, look, and it makes it makes logical sense to just wait until all the shares have been issued and all the shares are diluted. And is it one of those things again, where it's just people not taking the time to read how many shares are going to eventually hit the market. And then they're just buying at the IPO, not, not knowing this, or do you think that it's just maybe the type of market we're in now where people are just seeing a cool buy now pay later link to Peloton and they're just getting all excited. I don't know. I think it's a lot of things. I mean, Look, people say uh, institutional investors are really smart. They have all the resources. They get billions of dollars in fees. I mean, they can hire analysts to do this. And in reality, they tend to be really dumb and lazy. And um, I'm amazed how often they're blindsided. Um, you know, it, it, it just happens, though. You also have a lot of new day traders that came into the market with their stimmies that have never read one of these uh, offering documents. They probably don't even know that they exist. And then, you know, finally, ETFs have really bastardized the market because the ETF, when it gets added, the ETF doesn't care. The ETF just owns it. And when the float increases, the ETF probably has to buy some more. But the ETF is uh, totally agnostic about what's happening with 141 million shares coming. And yep. so you have these forces in the market, which, you know, for me, create opportunity. And, you know, we're going to try to work harder than everyone else. And, you know, I'm not going to say we're always smarter than everyone else, but I like to you know, work harder than everyone else. And, um, hopefully we'll be able to take advantage of these opportunities. And the history says that we usually do take advantage of these opportunities and make some money. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, and you guys, you guys have killed it. And the great, the great part about this is, you know, for those interested, I mean, I'm going to go ahead and, you know, give a little free promo here to the KEDM report, uh, the Cuppies event driven monitor report. It's um, if you don't have it, you should, cause it's still free, right? It's still free, but uh, not very much longer. Um, yeah. So basically it's like, you've got 50 to 80 pages sometimes of just these awesome ideas um, that, you know, no one else is finding. And, you know, for good reason, like there's a lot of work that goes into this. It's, it's, it, it goes back to what you said about these, um, you know, these, these, these share issuances. Bloomberg's not picking up on this because a lot of the conditional statements, some of the stuff you just got to manually slog through. Um, so for those that, again, don't know about the KDM report, walk us through why you decided to start it um, and then what your plans are for it going forward. And then maybe share with us just the growth that you've seen within, um, within the service. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been training a venture oven for my whole career, but it was never really systematized. And I assumed I was catching stuff. And I also would hear about, you know, I was like, oh crap, was this week? Or, you know, I totally would have played that if I'd known about it. How was I supposed to know about that? And um, I asked a good friend of mine to uh, start tracking these strategies. And I mean, we both thought he would uh, build an API. We have an Excel spreadsheet and it all done in like two weeks. And then uh, we'd be sitting here making money. And uh, what I realized very fast was that I was missing a lot more of this stuff than I thought I was. I mean, I was leaving a lot more money on the table, but um, I also realized how hard it is to build these strategies. I mean, like, like we were talking about with uh, the unlocks, Bloomberg doesn't have the data. It has to be manually uh, created, it has right. to be cleaned up. It has to be quality control. And, um, you know, you need people for that. And we're going to hire some people. Uh, you know, we're still working on the unlocks. That's our, our first priority once we put the paywall up. But um, you know, hiring people costs some money. Um, but um, we now have more than uh, two dozen strategies that we're tracking. We tend to add one or two more each uh, month. Uh, and this is just getting data. I mean, in, in the end, um, if it's on Bloomberg, it's probably arbitrage data. Yep. We're trying to go with that data that Bloomberg doesn't have yet. Uh, you know, we have a lot of these data sets. But for whatever reason, there is no function to Bloomberg. And five years from now, someone at Bloomberg will code it and all the opportunities disappear. But stuff like uh, privatizations, demutualizations, a CEO change, CBR, uh, you know, all this stuff, I can think of five, ten more, they're just not on the Bloomberg. And that's where the opportunity is. And so we're giving you the data sets. We're updating and flagging stuff in real time when uh, new data comes out. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we're doing a cliff notes to kind of tell you, hey, I think this is interesting. Go look at it. Oh, what we're not doing is giving uh, specific trade uh, advice. I mean, we're going to be one of the first uh, newsletters or whatever you want to call us. We're, we're there for the data. Uh, in yeah. an ideal world, two people look at an event. They'll have different time uh, frames. And one guy will go long, one guy will go short, and they'll both be happy to be flagged uh, some sort of inflection in the market. And really what we're looking at is corporate events and also liquidity events that lead to uh, some sort of uh, adventure of an opportunity that can last from a, you know, a few days to a few years, quite honestly. Uh, you know, some of these like bankruptcy exit, which also Bloomberg doesn't track, um, you have a company that's coming out of bankruptcy and usually pissed a lot of people off, lost a lot of people their money. And just one day it starts trading and you end up with uh, creditors that never expected to own equity. Maybe their mandate is not to own equity and they own equity and they say, let's get it off our books. I mean, especially a lot of these energy companies, the creditors yeah. now have an ESG uh, you know, mandate. mandate where when they owned the bonds three or four years ago, uh, they weren't even thinking ESG. So their incentive is to really get it off the 
looks fast. And we have someone who's selling and uh, no one who's really looking by it because no one's flagging it. There's no eye banker. There's no uh, road show. I mean, one day it just starts trading. I mean, I could tell you a lot of these, they start trading and it's not even like a corporate uh, deck on the website. So you're looking at old data, you're, you know, the filings have old data. There's usually a ton of legal fees going through the uh, SGNA. Um, what it's going to look like when it's cleaned up out of bankruptcy is very different. And you got to go build a model and you got to think it all through, but there's just a ton of opportunity here. I, I know it's been an up market for the last year, but look at all the bankruptcy exits. I mean, these things are outperforming the market dramatically. And I can just go through uh, strategy after strategy, but yeah. um, there's just a ton of opportunity in this stuff. And we flag a few and we flag in real time. Or, and, um, you know, we're not going to make uh, the entry price too expensive, but we got to pay for the people we're looking to hire. And I think it's a great product everyone should sign up for and hopefully subscribe for. But the next few weeks can be free. And uh, I like free stuff. And I, I think you would too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I'm a value investor. So <laughs> I pretty much wear the same clothes every day. So I like free stuff. <laughs> Now, take me, so so one one part of, let's call it the event-driven stack that I haven't dipped my toes in yet, and maybe it's because I'm scared, maybe it's because I'm just super naive about this whole process, is the post-bankruptcy um, stuff. And I think the only one that I almost did, and I could be wrong on the company name, but you might know it, was Parker Drilling. Okay. Um, you had a bankruptcy. If it was yeah, a drilling I, company, it must have been bankrupt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember them going through some sort of thing like that. And that was the only company where I was like, oh, I might do this. But again, I didn't I didn't pull the trigger. So like what I are do. what are some ways for investors that want to start dipping their toes into, you know, not even necessarily buying these post bankruptcies, but trying to get their head around um, you know, a a, a relatively safe strategy you know obviously you can just make it you know one percent of your book or something like that and just try to and just try to throw a few dollars at these things but you know what's 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 the best way to kind of get started with these post bankruptcies well i mean when you look at post bankruptcy um it's an interesting thing so they usually clip the balance sheet they usually exercise a lot of debt they usually uh if they're smart they get rid of a bunch of contingent liabilities and you know restructure leases they basically make uh, the company a better company coming out of bankruptcy and everyone's thinking of the old company and you have a new company so the first step is you read the documents you read the bankruptcy documents there's a ton of stuff on the, on the docket and it's kind of funny you know a lot of this stuff doesn't show up in the, you know, the q's and the k's it shows up in the bankruptcy docket so read the docket these usually forward estimates read the estimates um you know figure out what you think the thing is worth and what's interesting is that one day, kind of randomly, usually with uh, no fanfare, maybe it gets a press release and maybe there's not even any press release. It just starts trading. Yeah. And the market is not set by an underwriter. It's not set by anything. It's just set by a bid ask. And, you know, it starts trading and the bids, you know, 10 and the offer's 100. And an hour later, the bid's 12 and the offer's 50. <laughs> it just <laughs> finds an equilibrium over yeah. a couple of days and it's really volatile the first couple of days. And, you know, my experience, it usually trades down, mm -hmm. but, you know, some of these, they start trading at prices that are ridiculous and you can go short them. A lot of them start trading at prices that are structurally crazy cheap and you can go buy them, but it's, it's just, you gotta do your work. But what I like is, whereas an IPO, you have a roadshow, you have hundreds of, you know, institutional investors that submit bids for a set price. You're an underwriter that's looking at the set price. And besides, everyone's incentivized to basically 
these are the best possible price. So it's probably going to be at peak valuation, or, you know, the, the peak valuation that the underwriters think is possible. Here, there is no pricing mechanism except for random people putting bids and offers in, normally yeah. in a scenario where a good chunk of the shares are owned by people that have a mandate to sell in the next 30 days. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really quite uh, attractive. And I like situations where, you know, there's probably something mispriced because of uh, uneconomic reasons or, you know, structural reasons. And it's a good place to go fishing. It doesn't mean all the fish are edible, but it's a good place to go fishing. And, you know, that's what we're trying to do with Academy is generate this list. And, you know, we flag the ones that are more interesting to us, but, um, you know, we don't do tech, we don't do pharma, there's things we won't touch. So we just don't even put any mental energy in. But like, okay. you know, if it's something like Valerius, which, you know, I own some, you know, fair disclosure, uh, it, it came public with a net cash the balance sheet. It's uh, cash flow pos uh, positive based on banking uh, pockets. Uh, it's an offshore driller. Mm -hmm. um, as we know, uh, offshore drilling has been just atrocious. It's uh, I don't know, I've probably gotten chewed up in this sector twice or three times now because it always seems like it's going to turn and then it doesn't. Yep. Uh, so Valerius went bankrupt. It came out uh, and I'm buying a bunch of steel at roughly 10 cents in the dollar of uh, replacement cost. Um, hmm. I don't know what the right number is, but I like 10 cents in the dollar when you have a clean balance sheet, which gives you something of a runway to see if offshore does turn. I mean, Brent's up there at 70 right now, um, it kind of in the ballpark of where offshore should start getting some demand. And, and I think you guys also agree with me that oil is probably going higher, you know, over time. And, you know, I, I like buying steel really cheap. I mean, Valerius came out of bankruptcy with a press release. Uh, there is no corporate deck on the website. Uh, they've done no uh, roadshow. They've done no um, reaching out to investors. It just started trading one day. And yep. um, it's kind of funny how it started trading. It started, um, uh, where was the first take? I'll pull it up. Uh, Looks like know, it opened it, at 22, hit a high of 26 and a quarter. It bottomed at 20 the next day, and it's 21 right now. And it looks to me, chart-wise, like you have some uh, bond holders that are selling. There's really no you know, massive rush of uh, long-sided people. And it's just kind of sitting there in a $1 range as uh, guys like me buy and uh, bondholders sell to guys like me. Uh, I assume that with uh, the Q2 earnings, management hits the street and tells their story and tells the story of why they think uh, it's a turnaround. And remember also, <clears throat> it's important to point this out with bankruptcies, um, management sort of incentivized to have the price uh, weak because their options usually set based on uh, some sort of formula that tends to be something like, the average price of the 15 days, the first 15 days of the trading, or huh. you know, the, the options get set based on you know the price it was before the, you know the next quarterly earnings or something like that. Wow. So the the, the management team knows they're getting a big chunk of options, but they don't know what the price is. You know the, the options usually aren't set by you know the bankruptcy. So it's in a lot of people's incentive to have the stock trade weak. So I mean at least the insiders. I mean that's probably why there's no slide deck right now. That's um, fascinating. I didn't know that. But, I like situations where things line up and multiple things line up to create a cheap stock and then multiple things line up hopefully in the future to uh, create value. I assume these guys are going to go out there and beat the, um, you know, the, the, the presentation they put into their um, bankruptcy filing. I, I don't know. I'm not saying, you know, this is a bet the farm thing. It's offshore drilling, you know, but 
I think you can look through the bankruptcy reemergences and choose the better, you know, better five out of say 25 each year and make a yep. lot of money. And yeah. you know, that, that's kind of what we've been doing. Yeah, no, I love that. And you know, it, it, it reminds me a lot of how Michael Burry has positioned his book um, as of, as of this quarter, like he bought a lot of energy, a lot of transports. Um, he bought some healthcare call option type names, but you know, it goes back to this event driven looking for X stocks, um, which is, which is exactly kind of what, kind of what, kind of what Kedem is. I've got a, almost like a meta question for you, because on one hand, you've got this value investing strategy where you find good companies and you can hope to hold them for years. So for instance, like for you, um, you know, I'm sure you've got long-term holdings that you've bought that you would like to hold for, you know, as long as intrinsic value keeps rising and stuff like that. Um, and then over on the other side, you've got this high intensity event driven where there's times that it works, times that it doesn't. Do you ever feel like you're almost running in like this, um, in like circular rat contraption with event driven where like you just every day you're like, I don't know if this is going to work tomorrow. And then I don't know if I can find something that replaces it, if that makes sense. So I know with event driven that when I show up to work every day, the odds are in my favor because, um, you know, something structurally, like we just talked quite a lot about, uh, bankruptcy emergence. I just know structurally the odds are in my favor. There's a lot of variables are in my favor or unlocks, you know, a lot of odds are in my favor there. I also know that these things go in cycles. Remember we talked about the baloney squeeze one side. And so unlocks didn't work for a while and then they start working. You know, our job at Kevin is to flag, hey, this strategy that hadn't really been producing any alpha is suddenly producing a lot of alpha. Yep. It tends to be very uh, rapid where it goes from not working for a while. And then it doesn't like just sort of start working. It starts really start, it starts really, really working. Yeah. And that kind of fades out over a couple quarters. Um, I know that there's 20 plus of these strategies and I know I'm going to go where the ones that are working are working and we're going to leave when it stops working. And, you know, I, I just know that stuff works. I mean, there's periods of time where you don't really make any money. That's usually when uh, the VIX is quite low, especially realized at all. And there's periods of time, like, you know, we've had for the last year coming out of COVID where it works really, really well, like surprisingly yeah. well, uh, like, like it works so well that you don't really want to have much of a, you know, long book because yeah. interim does better yeah. and then you know it, it just goes in cycles and you have to be realistic about where you are on the cycle and move around the cycle but the other thing i really like about it, the event driven side is that it sets you up for something like uh this valaris where you know every day we're going to see you know kind of like slowly one foot in front of the other what's happening in the energy market what's happening in the offshore market if things seem like they're going well, you know, we're going to hold this longer. If things don't seem like they're going well, this will trade up from 10 cents on replacement to 20 cents on replacement. It'll trade at a pure multiple. You know, there's a couple other uh, publicly traded uh, offshore companies. It'll trade up that pure multiple, which should be a nice return from 21, and then we'll exit. But, you know, it, it, it kind of sets you up for what is it a term trade that could become a longer term trade. And I, I want people not to make a mistake that when you have a loser, you don't turn it into a loser into a long-term trade. That, that, that's just dumb. But, you know, sometimes uh, when it's winning, you can pivot. Uh, and I still have my long-term book. And the great thing with the long-term book is that um, it's a lot less volatile than the adventure and stuff. Uh, yeah. And um, it lets you kind of use it as collateral to fund your... Uh, uh, adventure book, you know, you're going to have some, uh, margin debt outstanding and you're going to use that against some kind of slow twitch, uh, long book. It, it kind of works well in, 
in cohesion together because um, you know it, it should be putting some uh, cash in your pocket almost every day, especially if you have a really diversified uh, venture in the book. You know, you're going to be yep. always booking winners, booking some losers, but it's producing net uh, cash that you can use to average down on your losers. I, yep. I think of it very much like Warren Buffett's insurance company. Yep. You know, over time, it's going to produce some cash for him that lets him buy more of his favorite stocks. And, you know, in the short term, it produces that float that he can use to own stocks. I mean, same sort of concept. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it, it's actually funny you mentioned that because I was right exactly where I was, where I was thinking I was going to ask you that. Um, cause I do something similar as well, where I have a little bit of a shorter term swing, mainly class, you know, chart strategy where I use those net profits from those swing trades to then funnel back into my high term, you know, high, high conviction long book. And again, it's all about, you know, trying to create float as long as you've got that net positive, um, you know, kind of result at the end of that strategy. I mean, I think that's a very small way to do it. I, I think people think of uh, investing in a very, like, uh, you know, one-dimensional way, buy stock, yeah. sell a stock. And I think it would be more like a business where how can, where can I get edge? I mean, I have this capital in the account. How can I get extra edge? Yep. And how can I get edge without taking much risk? Because, I mean, usually people say, I'm going to take edge, and usually it means some version of leveraging up, whether it's, you know, uh, margin debt or you know, options or something like that. And I'm yeah. not thinking of it that way. I'm saying... How can I think of this as a cohesive business that I'm doing? Yes, it all happens since I have a brokerage account, but it's a business in the end. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Too many, too many people get dogmatic about their about their investing approach. And they they I think I think you mentioned it um, like style drift, where you know it's not like style drift is really just kind of what 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 people say to excuse themselves from doing things that might make them money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean it, it boggles the mind. I mean, when you look at our industry, investing really isn't that difficult, okay? You effectively buy a cheap stock and you sit in your hands until eventually the market likes it. And I remember in the fall, everyone was crying, value investing is dead, work, you know, cheap stocks get cheaper, frauds go up. And then we just had the best six month window for value investing in, I think, my entire career. I think the only other time I've seen it this good is um, like basically coming out of the 2000 tech bubble. And, you know, we're just coming out of the Ponzi bubble now. <laughs> but, you know, in the end, um, you sit there, you have a good asset, you stay on top of what you own, and yep. it's really not that much work, uh, especially if you tend to own stuff for a while. Um, and I see people taking an easy thing and making it really, really complex, either because they just want to feel dizzy every day, or, you know, they run a fund and, you know, they have to put up numbers. I mean, there's a lot of pressure in our industry to put up monthly returns that are positive, never have a down month, you know, because it's really a marketing business that happens to, you know, own public securities. And I think hmm. it's wrong to think about it. You know, my figure is we, you know, own public securities and are totally agnostic as to what next month looks like or even next quarter because yeah. it's out of our control. And if you try to manhandle it and micromanage it, you're just going to make mistakes and leave money on the table. And so, but I just, I mean, if you own a cheap stock and it stays cheap a year from today, well, hopefully event-driven lets you produce some cash that you can buy more of it. But um, too many people are worried what's going to happen next week and next month. And it's just, I think a lot of people in our industry are kind of dumb. And, you know, the other flaw of our industry is that a lot of people um, can't leave their style box. They go, I'm a small cap value guy. I can't ever do event-driven or I can't ever do, you know, international but maybe international is where the next boom is going to be and yep. yep 
I'd hate to just be in a little style box. And too many of my friends, they set up their fund so they're stuck in their style box and maybe their style box is not the place they want to be, but they can't change it once, you know, they, they put it in the offering documents. And yep. I think it's just really dumb. Yeah. I mean, anytime I hear people on Twitter say, oh, I can't find any good ideas. Or if, if you go on Value Investors Club, they always have that poll. How many, you know, how many ideas <laughs> are you finding? Like none, few, a lot. And usually it's just always a few. And to me, I'm just, I always think like, if you just expand your universe, I mean, there's 50,000 global stocks out there like there's there's always a time where something's trading cheap i mean shoot i had michael uh fritz sale on the podcast and he covers asian um you know asian stocks and he brought up delphi uh limited um which is just like a uh, malay i think it's a malaysian uh chocolate producer like um, basically a monopoly in malaysia and indonesia owns 45 percent market share and it trades at i think it's like sub 12 times normalized ebit or something like that and it's like so whenever you know whenever someone's like oh i can't find stuff cheap it's like no you can you just don't want to leave that bubble that you've set for yourself well, absolutely it's not even that i mean if you're on public securities then you'll have all the derivatives of the public securities i mean that's the worst case scenario you take a stock that is fairly valued and you say this stock's trading at 50 i would love to own it at 35 and you go sell that 35 puts because maybe you'll actually get to own it. Something will happen in the world. There'll be a crash or a company will miss earnings. You never know, but you'll get to own it. But if not, you go out a few months and they'll pay you, you know, a few percent to write that put. And so, you know, yeah, the put trades at, you know, 25 cents, 50 cents, whatever it is. But you're making, you know, one, 2% return on your money. And that's free money because you just decided that it's fairly valued, but you'd love to own it at 35. You just got to think on your feet and do smart stuff. There's always something to do if you want to do it. And you should never feel pressured that you have to do something either. Yeah. And that's, that's actually what I've done with pow is I've tried to, when I, when I want to add to my position, I try to instead go out and sell the, sell the puts, um, like the $5 puts or something like that, just because, you know, a, it, it'll, it won't raise my cost basis as much. And I'll be able to collect some premium if the stock just keeps going higher. Cause I already have a pretty solid position. So, you know, that's something again, where it's like, what are you trying to do? Create a Warren Buffett Berkshire, like float strategy. Um, that's, that's a great way to do it. If you're, if you're, you know, if you we'll have the about, cash to get assigned. Let's talk about pal. Okay. You look at the stock as I'm right talking to you is trading at 647. Yep. Uh, the five puts for July with 57 days left or 20 cents bid. So you're going to sell them for 20 cents and you're basically risking $4.80 because you get that 20. So you're putting on a 20 divided by 480. Uh, you're making 4.1% on your money for 57 days. I mean, your annualized on that is a whole lot better than I'm getting at my money market account. And, um, you know, it's actually the sort of return that many investors would love to have on an annualized yeah. basis. And, you know, I don't want to say I have an opinion on Pow. I haven't followed as closely as you have, but I'm sure you'd love to buy some more there. Yeah. <laughs> so either way you win, either you own it at 480 or you get your 4.16 annualized return. I mean, a return for 57 days. It's kind of this win-win sort of scenario. Yep. And uh, I love that trade. Yep. Uh, I do a lot of that. I have a whole basket of these I'm writing puts on. And if you write puts on 20 or 30 names, you get tagged on one or two each um, each cycle. And that's not bad because I wanted to own it there anyway. Yep. 
Exactly. I'm going to take a massive pivot and switch to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency because I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't have you on the podcast without discussing what happened yesterday morning. Um, and you were you were very vocal about, you know, again, one of the things I love about you is you've got these opinions, but you don't let those opinions dictate how you trade the markets, which is a big deal. And I think one of the um, blog posts you had on adventures in capitalism, I think it was just like, just stick to the facts or you know, just, just the facts or something like that. And you said that too many managers take their, their macro theses or, you know, again, their dogmatic approach. And they, they basically try to fit that round peg into that square hole. That is a trading strategy. And you said, look, we're in project Zimbabwe. Everybody's wants the market to keep going up and you nailed the Bitcoin trade. And then you got out, you know, we'll call it roughly around that, that topping region. Yeah. I, I sold roughly 58,000 reference, uh, yep. on GBTC and, 40, I sold it in the mid to high 40s, let's say, March exit was like 47, 48. Um, yeah. my, my, I mean, my entry was like nine or 10. It was, it was, it was a good trade. Um, yeah. You know, I, I have no opinion where it goes, quite honestly. I mean, part of me says it's legacy tech um, where, you know, blockchain's here, it's going to power the future, but Bitcoin could be MySpace. It's legacy tech. I mean, there's a lot of uh, known problems with it. There's patches built around those known problems. But why patch a, a problem when you could just start fresh with something that's going to, you know, be faster, cheaper to operate, you know, not all the, you know, the, the CO2 emissions. There's all, there's all the flaws with the, with the product. Mm-hmm. But none of that matters. I mean, Bitcoin is very much like gold. It's very much like a lot of uh, financial assets. It's sentiment driven. Yep. And you ride the sentiment waves and too many of my friends uh, think it's a religion. You know, they watch some crazy thing on YouTube and they think they're doing research. It's just like, <laughs> nah, man, that's just like entertainment. And, um, and people just treat this thing like it's a complete religion. And I don't think it's a religion. It's just a QSO. Uh, I mean, in my mind, it is. it's just another financial product. And yep. you know, I, I got into it because I thought it, it would do very well with inflation. I thought it actually have, uh, leveraged money printing that proved right and then um you know two people on twitter started saying you know they had this uh, stock to flow and you know did these blow off tops the last few cycles so everyone's like i don't have to sell because the blow off top coming you know and like when everyone expects a blow off top because it happened the last few times usually doesn't happen that's how finance works yep. and so i'm watching this thing and the sentiment kind of got really extreme uh, people who I haven't heard from in years started reaching out to me and telling me like they just bought Bitcoin at you know fifty five thousand. Uh, you know Coinbase had an IPO. Usually IPOs, you know, big uh, financial innovations usually happen at the tops of these cycles, not you know the bottoms. Um, and um, you know the, the, the chart pattern looked very head and shouldery to me. It kept trying to make new highs, but it didn't really punch. You know, yeah. uh, before when it made a new high, it just punched you know twenty percent higher that week. And now it wasn't really punching. It just kind of fell back into the range. And I have this thing, uh, I can't sleep very well sometimes and I never know why. And I'll just be awake all night. And here I'm awake all night checking my Bitcoin quote. I'm, I'm thinking to myself, this thing's keeping me awake. Uh, you know, subconsciously there's a problem with it. And, yeah. you know, I, I sold about a third of the position the next day and I slept really well for the first time in two weeks. And then Damn. it started happening all over again. I sold another third of the position. I slept really well. It was over about a month-long position um, period. I just exited the position. Huh. Um, and I slept just fine. And then it actually hit a new high. And I, all my friends were like, you got to get back in. You got to get back in. You're missing it. And I'm like, 
no, I feel just fine. And I saw this weird divergence between uh, some of the, the crypto frauds, I call them, uh, you know, Mara and Riot and uh, you know, Grayscale starting to trade from a premium for discounts and MicroStrategy. These things all traded off. And I've always found that when you look at a commodity, you know, like the, the gold crash of 2013, where I got really badly bruised, uh, you know, the gold stocks had been weak for months before the, the price of gold collapsed. And you, yep. know, you look at like uh, the oil crash of uh, was it 2016, uh, you know, oil stocks had been weak for months before the price of physical started dropping. And here, you know, all the miners were weak before the physicals dropped. And when you see divergences like that, um, you know, because like the equity piece is really uh, very uh, leveraged to what happens to the, the, the price of the underlying. And it tends to be sentiment-wise more levered. And so um, when, when it just kind of showed like a second derivative of sentiment kind of, you know, fading while Bitcoin sentiment kept making new highs, this kind of started fading. And whenever I see divergences, it kind of weighs on me. Um, hmm. You know, divergences always uh, resolve themselves. You just don't know if it's going to resolve itself because the miners going to rally strongly or if the underlying is going to collapse. And in my experience, right. usually the underlying collapses. So all these things came together and I said, you know, Bitcoin is a huge piece of my net worth suddenly, and I have zero confidence what's happening. I've never wavered in saying it's a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> and uh, I said to myself, why do I have so much money in something that I think is worthless? And I exited. <laughs> and, uh, no wonder you weren't like, sleeping well at night. And then, I mean, I'm like a religion. My friends think it's a religion. They think it's going to whatever price, you know, the stock to flow model says, or what Michael Saylor says. And, you know, maybe they're right. I don't know. I mean, I hope that it goes up because a lot of my friends just had a really awful week. But mm -hmm. in the end, I, I'm not involved. And I have a couple of puts I wrote, and, but I'm not really involved. And um, that's fine by me. <laughs> but now, I traded it well, and I'm really proud of myself. Yeah, I mean, you crushed, you crushed the trade. And you mentioned, you know, you sold a third, you sold a third, you sold another third because you couldn't sleep. Did you have any stop losses at that point or price targets where you're like, hey, if it trades below this, I'm going to get out? Because to me, that's that's the way that I kind of alleviate that restlessness when it comes to holding a big position. It's like, okay, if I've got stops in, again, barring any like crazy gap downs or anything like that, if I've got stops in, I can sleep pretty well at night um, with, 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 with some of these more mechanical trades. Did you have anything like that or, or was it, you know, a big position? And again, GBTC is the OTC market. So it's not always as liquid. So, I mean, Bitcoin tends to move around violently often at night. Maybe like, oh, shucks, it just moved 5,000. Huh. You know, so stocks don't really work in the same way you want them to. <laughs> Especially when you have like a six figure position in grayscale, because I mean, it's OTC, you show up, you want to sell 5,000 shares and some assholes like a penny in front of you and you, know, you can't trade it. And when you do trade it, like, you know, the, they don't display your quote or they trade around you. So, you know, I just knew that in a fast market like we had yesterday, I won't be able to get out. I'm definitely not getting right. out of the size I had. And so um, I just kind of trickled it out over a period of time. I lost confidence. I don't believe in stop loss. It's not really the way I do stuff. Um, occasionally I'll put on like a venture of a trade and it's just like, yeah, below this price, the theme, the thesis is broken. Yep. Uh, and I'll have a stop on that, but you know, I, I, I'm, I mean, that, that's really mechanical, but on something like Bitcoin, yeah, if it breaks a certain price level, it probably means sentiment's waning. You should get out because Bitcoin is only sentiment. There's mm -hmm. no value to it. <laughs> yeah. So take us through now what, and this is, this is on top of my mind because, you know, I just released a post about Michael Burry's latest Q1, um, 
13F, and he's got a lot of energy. Like I said, a lot of tankers, which, you know, I think I gave you a shout out in the post. I said, everybody knows Scorpio because of Cuppy. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But what's funny now, if I let me, let me actually look at the chart because I, like most, lost money on Scorpio last year, but it's setting up. Sorry. It's setting up again. So that whole trade and that whole thematic is setting up again. And like Michael Scott says, no doubt about it, I'm ready to get hurt. Um, you know, it kind of <laughs> it's 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 setting up. So you've got so you've got these tankers and you've got these drillers and then you've got coal. So maybe walk us through, if you can, on a broad level, I guess the bull thesis for why this trade would work or should work, whether it's coal, whether it's these tankers um, that are that are transporting, you know, commodity types to India and China, um, you know, or or even you know something like Scorpio, um, you know, why why should this trade work if things if things work out the way the way they might over the next you know year or two? So I'm not sure if Scorpio is going to work or not. Uh, I don't really have a super strong opinion, uh, quite honestly. Um, I- the great thing about being an investor is that the stuff you feel really strongly about and you can play it very big. I run a very concentrated book and the stuff where you say, you know, this could happen and then that could happen and maybe it goes this way and maybe it goes that way. And you kind of watch and, you know, whatever happens. Uh, I think structurally um, the governments of the world are overstimulating and uh, that's going to increase demand for, you know, industrial commodities, oil, uh, transport of these products. And, you know, that ought to be good for these sort of businesses if they continue to overstimulate. Uh, you know, this, each commodity has its own supply demand mechanics that usually uh, outweigh what the government's doing. But um, even though supply demand, demand mechanics can get, uh, you know, overwhelmed if the government stimulates too much. And structurally, I want to be long stuff that does well when the government uh, prints money and wastes it. Because it's not just us doing it, it's most governments doing it. Yep. Uh, you know, I don't have a position in Scorpio, uh, but, um, you know, I have a position in a company called Dorian that uh, transports propane. And, um, that's LPG, that's, right? Yes, yes. And they just came out with earnings yesterday. They were pretty good. Um, you know, I like buying a bunch of steel at 50 cents the dollar. I mean, my, at my entry price, I came into it about 25 cents the dollar, 30 cents the dollar. Companies bought back uh, almost 20% of the company the last uh year, a little over a year. So the management team is what I say, the earnings are great. Fundamental, you know, dynamics of Asia needs propane. It's going to most likely be coming from the Gulf of Mexico. Hmm. You know, it, it, it plays well because it's very long haul. And uh, I like that trade, uh, you know, but if the government keeps stimulating uh, in China and other places that use uh, propane, it's probably going to be good for propane transport because those places don't produce their own propane or they don't produce enough of it. So I, I just, I think you can be structurally long, all sorts of stuff in commodities, but I like to pick and choose my spots. Got it. No, that was great. Um, I, I've been scarred by the tanker, so I'm slowly trying to dip back let's, in. Let's, let's talk about tankers. Um, I, I had a thesis in uh, 2019 where I got long that after a 10-year bear market, um, the supply and demand imbalance was going to fix itself, partly because it was minimal ordering and partly because of this thing called IMO 2020, which would obsolete a lot of older tankers. And I basically caught the inflection. I do a lot of inflection investing, but uh, I caught effectively the first good quarter in 10 years at these businesses. Uh, and then sequentially, they produced uh, four additional quarters 
that were incrementally better than the prior quarter. You know, you normally have seasonality in this stuff. We saw no seasonality that year because the market got tight. No one could have ever predicted COVID um, and COVID killed my thesis. Uh, in the short run, you had a super contango scenario, which dramatically improved the thesis. Uh, but then you had a hangover and the hangover settled in this weird netherworld where you didn't have super contango. Uh, so rates weren't structurally high, but uh, the governments of the world didn't open up their economy. So you didn't have uh, uh, the glut clear. Instead, you had this glut that basically made tankers really unprofitable for the last nine months. Yeah. And I don't see anything really changing that because while the glut has mostly cleared, um, OPEC is still uh, constricting supply, which mostly moves by tankers. And you have a scenario where um, a lot of new tankers have been developed. Uh, delivered and with interest rates as low as they are, no one's scrapping. As the price of uh, oil goes higher, the spread between uh, high sulfur sulfur should widen and make uh, less efficient vessels, uh, less economic. But those vessels are finding their their, their way into um, the contraband market, where they're moving oil between Iran and uh, Venezuela and other countries where you know more established players won't venture, and so. This demand for these tankers still, and um, you know, I I, I want to be bullish tankers. There'll be a good time to be bullish tankers, and it just isn't setting up like I want it to set up. Uh, yeah. You know, one of the things about having an inflection portfolio, and, and I want to stress this, is that if you catch the inflection, you come in as as cheap as possible on a price to nav or yeah. on earnings or anything else. I mean, these tankers more or less round tripped. I, I had a double in Scorpio's case. I had almost a triple. You know, I sold a little on the way up just because it got to be too mm -hmm. big a piece of the book. But, yep. you know, when it round tripped, you, you kind of go, whoops, and you sell. And, you know, at my sell price, I was still up a little. And yep. I, I got the thesis totally wrong because COVID killed my thesis. Yep. And it's, it's, it's always a good feeling when you uh, bomb a thesis and you still make a little money. I just didn't make as much money as I had hoped to. But, you know, that's the whole point about getting there at the inflection. I mean, if you're chasing one of these things, you know, a couple quarters into the inflection, it's already doubled or tripled. I mean, you might get hurt. And I know a lot of people got hurt and you know, I feel bad people got hurt because a lot of people, you know, followed me into these, this thesis. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, it is what it is. Here's a name that you should look into and you probably already have, but it's Golden Ocean Limited. G-O-G-L. Oh, uh, Burry owns it's it. It's a drive player, right? Uh, I believe so. I can pull up my article. Yeah, dry bulk vessels, um, transports, ores, coals, grains, fertilizers. Um, I I bought some this morning, and well. kind of like what you said, like inflection. Like it's got a really nice monthly chart, um, breaking out of a really long term monthly oh, base. Up. Yeah. So um, that's a tanker that again, like I said, starting to dip my toes into, but um. But no, I mean, like, look, well, these tankers, but yeah, you, you, you have to get in when the getting's good or, you know, kind of like right before the getting's good when the TCE rates are high and the break-evens are low and you can't really buy and hold these things. Oh, these are trading vehicles. Um, I like trading. You know, it's kind of like a Bitcoin that's meant for trading. It's not meant for owning. Yeah. Um, and uh, anything that floats is meant for trading. Uh, steel that floats in the ocean throughout its history has structurally lost money, whether it's drilling rigs or OSVs or, you know, uh, tankers or anything, structurally throughout the full cycle it loses money. It's a trading product. And 
I like to buy them when they're losing money, when they when you can buy the steel at a huge discount to replacement cost, and you have some sort of catalyst that will get them from losing money to maybe making some money. And then, you know, as that catalyst plays out, the net asset value starts increasing rather than decreasing just through retained earnings, through the value of the vessels uh, recovering. And then um, you know, the net asset value grows at the same time, um, the shares start trading at a price closer to net asset value or even a premium to net asset value. So you have multiple levers, usually with a lot of financial leverage that go in your way. And that's, that's the reason these things on a few thousand dollar change in day rate can sustain a few hundred percent. And, yeah. and uh, I love I, I love these floating steel assets. You got to also respect them, and they can really hurt you bad. Yeah, I think now. So we just kind of spent an hour going over the topics I wanted to, and I say we spend the rest of the time diving into the Twitter Q and A because I think there's some yeah, pretty sure, good questions there. So fun fact: this is the first time I've done Q and A on the podcast. Um, <laughs> a little interesting there. Um, I always used to think that going to Twitter Q and A was a reflection of me not doing my homework. On a, on a on a podcast guest and I was like tapping out waving the white flag and trying to decentralize my own process but I think it's good I think it's I, I think it's a good thing especially for a repeat guest so all right I'm just gonna roll right through these and you can say you know hey this is a dumb question I'm a, I don't get it next one this is from uh, Healy man which is at Healy big uh, he said how do you make the best use of Kedem, KEDM, for people with limited investment background. While some sections like the Fallen Angels are, and this is his quote, easy to profit from, others are not so easy to take action for newbies. Well, one of the things we're going to do, and you know, I think we've had this uh, counter criticism quite a lot, is that, hey, copy 100 pages a day here. It's all really interesting, but the hell do I do with it? And so um, I intend over the next couple of months to film some tutorials and we're gonna post them on the Kedem website. Uh, actually, they should have been uh, posted quite a while ago, but we're a little bit late on uh, getting our website up. <laughs> you know, timelines never line up like you think. Um, no. But um, I think those tutorials will help you to better understand what to do with this data, how I think of it, how I trade it. But, you know, in the end, um, no two people will trade the same uh, event the same way. and. There is no right way to trade it, you know? I, I know people, you know, even looking at unlocks, which we talked about earlier, you know, a lot of these I'll short a few weeks before the unlock, you know, five, 10 days, something like that. And then usually into the unlock, I'm gonna the, the implied volatility spikes and I'll cover my short by writing puts. Yep. Uh, and it's, it's just basically a way that, you know, sometimes unlocks get so uh, hedged out because so many guys short them, especially the more visible ones. Um, that, they actually bounced. I mean, when uh, Uber unlocked, it actually rallied. I mean, everyone sold the shares and then it rallied over the next couple of days. And, you know, so you don't really know which way it's going to go sometimes at the actual event date. So it's, it's great to, you know, sell some vol and, you know, capture it that way. Uh, you know, you, there's no right way to trade these, but we'll talk about some uh, ways to trade these. We're going to put up some, uh, you know, five minute sort of tutorials and walk through a few scenarios. Hopefully they'll be educational. I mean, it's partly educational for me because then people reach out to me and say, hey, copy, have you thought of this? And I go, no, I haven't. That's good. Yep. <laughs> yep. Awesome. All right. Next question here from astronaut at scientists baffled. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he asks or she, 
what do you think of current uranium equities, specifically the juniors? And I assume you mean, or I assume they mean junior miners. Are they overpriced? Because many have three to five X already from a year ago, and the spot price hasn't moved much. Although a lot of catalysts or things are happening that could push the spot price higher. I mean, I have no uranium juniors. Um, I own some Kaz Adam Prom, and I sold it all for a nice gain. But I have no uh, positions right now. Um, Look, um, the junior is our a derivative on uh, uranium, mm. and so if the price of uranium goes up, the juniors will do well. If the price of uranium doesn't go up, they won't. A lot of these are pre-produced or not producers currently, so you're really buying a uh, you know some drill results that uh, the NPV of that asset will increase and decline with the uranium price. But there's a bunch of SGA. And uh, the guys who run these companies tend to take nice fat salaries and dilute you. You kind of like you burn, you're owning a burning match. If you know this is the year that, that uranium goes, maybe the price goes higher. Uh, but each one of these companies is a little different. You got to look at where the NPVs of the assets are. Most of these mines will never get produced. So you're just kind of playing sentiment in, in a way, and you're playing a second derivative of the uranium price. And these things are up a ton. And you know, if you look back through history, these things have diluted dramatically and destroyed you know, billions of dollars of capital while people wait for their turn in uranium. And so uh, is this is the year, is this the year that uranium goes? I don't know, maybe, maybe not, but it's a very speculative play toy. If you own something like, uh, you know, Cameco or Kaz Adam Prom, at least you get cash flow today, so they're not diluting you. Uh, you don't get a lot of cash flow, but you get some while you wait for the turn. Um, I prefer those sort of things. I don't really like the juniors much. I mean, especially because a lot of these juniors trade at multiple hundreds of millions of uh, valuation. To build the mine, they need multiple hundreds of millions or maybe even billions. Um, and you'd be insane today to build a uranium mine because it's oversupplied. And you know, when um, the price of uranium goes up, a lot of these guys like Kaz Prom or Cameco, they can increase their production quite a lot and uh, make money during the short period of time when uranium is high. And then they let the market again. I, I'm just not all that bullish, I guess. But I, I, if anything, I would buy, uh, you know, physical uranium and just play. Look, there's, there's a shortage right now. There's, you know, more demand. There's, there's more consumption than production. It should fix itself at a higher uranium price at some point in the future. And physical uranium should probably go up. And, you know, uranium is at, what, 25, 27, 30, whatever it is. Maybe it goes to 50. Maybe even goes, it overshoots, it goes to 100. But it's a pretty low-ish risk, uh, double or triple. I, I like that strategy better. Got it. David Nitka at David Nitka asked, you have to own one company that IPO'd in the last 90 days for one year. What company do you buy? I have no idea. And why is it a firm? <laughs> no, I would not buy a firm. Uh, if there's a price for everything, there's probably a price I would own a firm at. But I don't think it's at this price. <laughs> so if you had to pick. I have no position. I, I, I don't know. I, I haven't looked at too many of the IPOs. I mean, IPOs tend to list uh, overpriced. I mean, I mean, it's designed to get the best price for insiders in the company. I like situations like Valeris where it's designed to literally get a terrible price. <laughs> I, guess you know, I, I guess that counts as an IPO, right? Valeris? Uh, the, the bankruptcy restructuring. Yeah. I, I don't know what accounts has, but I own a bunch because I, I think it's cheap. Um, but no, I, I don't even really look at too many IPOs. And most of the IPOs lately have been uh, tech IPOs. 
And I read the, I mean, I read the one paragraph summary because we put it in Kedem. I read it a second time. I go to the website of the company. I, I read some more and I go, I have no idea what these people do. Like, I just, <laughs> I just don't understand it. So no, I'm, I'm the wrong person to ask. Well, you would like uh, Oatly, oat milk. That's pretty easy to understand. They just uh, went public today, I think. How do you lose money? I mean, my wife buys some of this stuff. It's amazingly expensive. How do you lose money producing it? Oh, whatever. It's, I mean, why does it have the valuation it has too? It's just crazy. It's like almost one and a half billion dollars. Not for, right. oat, for oat milk. Anyway. So that's a hard one for you to answer. All right. Noted. <laughs> Next one here. All right. This is from, I don't even know how to say this person's name. Haina Baichuan. Oatly is valued at $13 billion and it loses money. Thirteen billion. It. Okay, I was off by just a multiple money. of thirteen. No big deal. Valeris uh, will produce what is it, like fifty million of cash flow this year, give or take, uh, and it's valued at a uh, billion five, and you get like fifteen billion of replacement cost equipment for free. It's it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. All right. You know which so way I go. Haina 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 Bichen, um asked. What is the best way to play spec, unlock, buy, put, or short shares directly? We already covered that, I think, a little bit. I mean, there's no best way to play anything. Um, it's all situational dependent. Uh, you know, obviously, you uh, avoid you know, supernova GameStop sort of risk when you buy puts, uh, but mm -hmm. you pay for that right. Yep. Got it. All right. Next one from PDub1231. He asks... He, Cuppy, was the original on Playboy, PLBY. What does he think of it now? Um, I haven't even looked at it in a month. Uh, where is it now? Uh, yeah, 45 bucks. Uh, I don't know. Man. I mean, I sold mine uh, high teens, low 20s. Uh, I basically sold the 20 and 22 calls against uh, my position. I got called away and uh, haven't looked at it since. I'm Pretty happy. I came into it at a nickel above trust value. Um, I banged on about it for a long time. I thought it was really, really cheap. No one agreed with me. It's stuck there at about a dollar over trust value. And then they announced that they have that they could do something with NFTs. And <laughs> that was like the perfect storm. <laughs> yeah, great. I mean, I came into it because I was buying uh, an annuity cash flow stream that was growing a single digit multiple. I like doing that. I, I mean, I literally came into it at a lower EV than the contracted royalties for the rest of this decade. Uh, and then became an NFT play. And I'm sure there's someone who will pay millions of dollars for, you know, a classic nude NFT, but that's not me. And I didn't understand why it was going up and it hit my fair value. And I said, okay, this is good. There and, you, go. uh, you know, the earnings came out uh, and uh, they missed as far as I'm concerned. Uh, uh, I think they missed badly actually. And the forward guidance was terrible. And, um, the stock went up anyway, and I got taken out of my calls, and I was a pretty happy cuppy. Nice. There you go. All right, next one from Wes Johnson at WesJ22. Best Puerto Rican beer? I haven't found it yet. Oh, man. <laughs> Sorry. But you'll keep trying. They, they do run sure. very well. They do run very well. I give them credit for that. I like Barralito quite a lot. But no, I have not found the best uh, Puerto Rican beer. Not for lack of searching. <laughs> All right. Alexandra Natalich asked, Cuppy, are you buying the dip in Bitcoin? Uh, I bought it yesterday during the 
flash crash. Uh, I just shoved some futures bids in. Uh, I ended up buying it. I was just buying like every couple hundred bucks, every you know, 500 down, whatever. But I ended up buying some contracts at about uh, 32 seven average. And an hour later, I went to go get coffee, came back, was at 36. I said, okay, this is good. I made some money and I sold it. Um, you know, whenever something overshoots, uh, something that I'm actually familiar with the asset, if it really like uh, detonates, I, I might throw a bid and buy it. Because usually something that's really, really oversold, especially in short-term charts, will have a little bounce. Mm-hmm. But no, I didn't buy this uh, with any size. And I didn't buy this like I really wanted to own it. I, I bought it because it dropped from 50 to 30 in what, like four days? It dropped from like 42 to 30 in like couple hours and i said if i had to own bitcoin at 30 and it really went to 25 or 20 i'd probably buy it back there anyway so whatever i bought a few nice i just rent it yeah phil reynolds asks why is joe not moving ask cuppy <laughs> just not moving i mean it, it's uh, a large large ish cap stock that more than doubled in the in the nine months i've owned it i mean it's absorbing I, I like an insane an insane amount of gains going back from october of 2020. <laughs> i mean why isn't it moving I don't, I don't know if he if he wants it to go up he should buy some more i don't there know you go. there you go you heard it here first supply and demand 101. all right let's see i think we have a few more from your section oh yeah charles duquesne asks you following copper these days yeah it's i mean i'm following it it's gone Straight up, uh, you know, we talked about this earlier. Governments keep sti- overstimulating and overprinting. Demand for industrial metals can do great. Uh, I, I think all these uh, things will probably do very well. I mean, will copper go higher? Will it go lower? I don't really have a firm view. I mean, yeah. when you see everyone on Twitter talking about something, it usually tends to coincide with a short-term top. I mean, yeah. copper's been all over the place, and copper's pulled back really hard this week. Um, will it go higher? I, I don't really know. I don't. I don't have a super strong view. Um, you know, there's things I'd probably rather be in, but uh, no, copper demand is going to go up if they keep overstimulating. And there's probably someone really smart that knows how to play that. I haven't found the way. You're going to like this one. CJ Ford asks thoughts on Twitter as an investment. Uh, if they can figure out how to monetize it, it's going to be a massive win. Um, so far, they have spent billions of dollars every year in R and D and they can't even get an edit function, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's some low hanging fruit there and they can't seem to figure it out. Um, no monetization. Like, look, they have a lot of eyeballs. Uh, it's a great product. If they charged me to use it, I'd probably pay. Yeah. Um, I, I just think it's a great product and it's entertaining and I learn a lot from it. And, uh, I don't see anyone not. <laughs> I don't see anyone knocking them off and creating a better product that does something similar. So it's theirs to figure out how to monetize it. And so far, they failed. Yep, agreed. I have no position. I might. Where? Where's Twitter? I always said that I would buy some if it traded below, like, or if it got into the 40s, upper 30s. I bought um, it um, in 2020 when it was in the. What was it? The like uh, high 20s and I kind of sold mine out. So, you know, when it rallied a bit, I just found better things to do. But no, I, I owned it, I rented for a month or two. I wrote a lot of puts on Twitter. The implied volatility was high and I didn't mind owning it at like a 20 cost base. And I never got a sign, which is fine because they paid me a few bucks a month to hope I got paid. 
I mean, if you get paid, you know, a few bucks a month to hope you get to own Twitter at 20, like, how can you be sad? I mean, I took a lot of money out of it, but I didn't get to own it really. Or yep. not, not in the size I wanted. All right, last uh, last question here, just because of the ticker name or the the ticker, the uh, username Death by Asphalt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is Micron investable at an eighty dollar price point? I don't follow tech. I just don't really know. Sorry. Yeah, I'm long Micron, but again, I mean, I don't know. Eighty dollars. It all depends on what you think the fair value is. So, Death by Asphalt can't help you there. Um, <sighs> Someone did have a question, which I wanted to save to the end. And it was just kind of, you know, like another meta question here about, about you and the fund and all that stuff. Um, they asked, uh, Blabbermouth actually asked, what are Cuppy's plans for the next few years for his fund, life, and Ketum? He is moving to Puerto Rico. Oh, that's a lot. Um, you know, Ketum, I think we've already talked about this, but we intend to hire some one or two more analysts. There's some, some projects like uh, Unlocks and we really want to just dial in on. I think we're going to focus on making this a better product. Um, you know, I've been subsidizing it now per, you know, for a while and it'd be nice if someone else helped chip in. Um, you know, I think we've created something great and I really hope everyone uh, pays. The, the price point's not going to be anything egregious. It's you know, designed so that if you get one good idea each year, you should be able to you know, afford it. Um, so that, that's Ketum. Uh, I, we have another 20 strategies we want to onboard. And then, you know, some of the data integrity of the existing strategies we want to keep improving. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I am moving to Puerto Rico. I am a Puerto Rican. Um, I am uh, in the process, hopefully, of uh, closing on a house I'm looking to buy in Puerto Rico. I'm going to spend a lot more time there. I, I like the island. Um, and, uh, you know, you can come visit me and get a beer in Puerto Rico. <laughs> there you go. I'm going to hold you to it. Um, this is actually important. Where can people go to um, apply? Have you, and, and again, this is only because, you know, um, actually they just sponsored the podcast, but have you put the job application on bullpencareers.com? I have, I don't know where the job application is. Uh, sorry, I'm not the one handling the HR process on this. Okay. Um, I did uh, on my blog, Adventures in Capitalism, uh, send out a blog post that we're hiring. Yeah, uh, we got quite a lot of uh, responses. We're going through those responses and doing some nice. interviews now. Uh, but if you are interested in applying, there's a link there, and uh, you should uh, click the link and apply. Yeah. I think it's a great job. You're going to learn a lot, and uh, you're going to learn event driven and. Hopefully, you know, if you're staring at a bunch of data, you're going to see things a little differently than I see it. And hopefully, you're going to find new ways to make money with the data. Uh, there's just a lot of opportunity trapped in data. And the first step is getting good data and putting it onto a PDF and then sitting there over beers and saying, how do we make money with this information we have? And, you know, one good manipulation of the data can be worth millions. Yep. So, you know, I think it's an exciting job. And you get to drink beers with me, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most people pay for that privilege. <laughs> no, no, no one pays that privilege. <laughs> and then you guys will find the perfect beer, and then the whole circle will be complete. So that's awesome. Well, Copy, I know that I ask, you know, the closing questions that I did last year, uh, but again, for people that are maybe just finding my podcast or just just figuring out who you are, um, where can people go to find out more about you? So my blog is adventuresincapitalism.com. Uh, sign up. Uh, it's free. Uh, you get what you pay for. 
Uh, but I, I tend to write about once or twice a week, uh, things I'm seeing in the market, you know, themes I have out there. Um, Kedem is at kedm.com. It's still free for a few more weeks. I recommend you subscribe. I think you'll learn something. And then my Twitter is at hcuppy. Got it. And I'm going to put all those links in the show notes too. So if you guys are interested, Great. just appreciate it. Just, yeah, of course. And then um, I'll reach out to Edwin Dorsey, who runs Bullpen Careers. And if you want to give me the contact of your HR people that handle the job app, they can put it on their job board. Um, so I know that they're trying to do something like that. So it wouldn't, wouldn't hurt to have another, to have another. Probably wouldn't hurt. Yeah. 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 I'll reach out. I mean, uh, there's someone in our company doing the HRI. Yeah. Cool. Don't tell have the time for that. <laughs> yeah. All right. So then the last question, and I honestly don't remember your answer the first time, but if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Probably dodged that question last time. Maybe I should dodge the question again. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> This is that question and the IPO question, not getting anything. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, in today's political world, I'm probably going to end up offending someone if I say who I want want to have dinner with. So no, let's just dodge that question. (laughs) Hey, man, she's a great politician. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this was, this was, this was fantastic. Um, Thanks so much for coming on the show again. Uh, like I said, guys, you're going to learn so much just by following, um, you know, the Kedem report and just finding out these interesting ideas. And, and uh, Cuppy is, is definitely a follow on Twitter. So Cup, thanks for so much uh, for coming on the show. And I look forward to continuing chatting with you. Hey, thanks for having me. It's been fun. And let's do it again next year. <laughs>